That's right. Mm-hmm. Straight out of Compton. Stormlight in the house. 20650 Leonardtown, Maryland. <laughs> what? It's where I grew up. I grew up in Compton. Cedar Street, yo. <laughs> Lady Baltimore Avenue. Representing hard. I don't know what's scarier. What's that? The neighborhood you grew up in or... Or Compton. Or Compton. The real Compton. The real Compton. I grew up in the real Compton. I know you did. It's just not the same Compton. Would you like to get this thing started? Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. Welcome to episode 81. We will be covering Words of Radiance, chapters 22 through 27 by Brandon Sanderson. Who in the dickens are you i'm liz i'm the duchess i'm chad and next up we're going to be covering chapters 28 through 34 28 through 34 just let me take a little note here on my handy dandy typing screen you'd think one of these weeks i would go ahead and tell chad in advance no what the next section is going to be but he has to wait for the podcast no i don't know why just the way it's always worked. So there's a lot to talk about this week. There's stuff. There's stuff. There's things. There's things to speculate upon. Not major plot points, but a I, lot to talk about. I think there's, I feel like there's one fairly major plot point. I don't want to give it away. Well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Speaking of giving things away, would you like to tell them what our spoiler policy is? Yes. Chad has not read this series yet. Nope. I have. So Some would say I'm not reading it now. <laughs> we are not going to be spoiling any plot points that happen after chapter 27 of The Words of Radiance. No, we won't. Way of Kings is fair game. We also will not talk about other things in other Cosmere-related books, at least so much as they would spoil plot points. Yes, indeedy. So we're not going to tell you who survives in Mistborn. You you wouldn't know. Well, if I did, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> so chapter 22 is called Lights in the Storm. I'm going to read the snapter because I think it was very interesting and we're probably going to want to pick it apart. I think we might talk about it. The snapter goes like this. Storm form is said to cause a tempest of winds and showers. Beware its powers, beware its powers. Though its coming brings the gods their night, it obliges a blood red spren. Beware its end, beware its end. So we'll get into that in a little bit. But in this chapter, we have Kaladin guarding a meeting between Elokar and Adolin and Renarin. And there's a high storm raging. Kaladin can sense something in the storm. He says he senses faintly red spheres that remind him of eyes. Dalinar joins them after the high storm ends, and Kaladin takes the opportunity to pull him aside and actually tell him about Amaram. Dalinar doesn't brush him off completely, but he's skeptical. He promises to talk to Amaram, and Kaladin decides to find his own justice. 
Back at Bridge Four's camp, Kaladin meets another of the Lopin's cousins and has a disheartening conversation with Shen. Before he has much of a chance to start brooding, however, news arrives of an assassin attacking the king. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff in this chapter. And this is really, I think, arguably the most eventful chapter in this section. So kind of, it's not super long. A lot happens. You know, we get a lot of action kind of right out of the gates. I love the foreshadowing of the snapter talking about the blood red spren leading right into Kaladin noticing something blood red floating around outside the window. Yeah, that was my first note as well, is that, you know, we transition from the discussion about Stormform straight into what appears to at least somehow be related. And we know that Stormform is the form that Ashonai was going to try, the new form of power. Yes. Uh, that Venley discovered mm-hmm. and that she was apprehensive about trying because she was afraid it was going to bring back their gods. And that's all in just the first paragraph. So then we have Renarin, Adolin, and Elokar. They're just kind of chilling during the high storm. Renarin, I thought it was interesting. He's compulsively fiddling with a lo- this little small box. Yes. So we know through interviews with Brandon Sanderson that Renarin is intended to um, be someone who has autism. I did not know that. It's true. Yeah, there's several interviews where he has said that 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 was his intention in writing this character. I think he makes such a nice contrast with Adolin. They're so different, and it's but it's touching how well they get along despite that. Yeah, you know, Renarin is one of the few relationships that Adolin has that's not completely surface level. Yeah, that that and Dalinar, and I guess Navani as well. Outside of his family, yeah, Adolin really doesn't have any deep relationships. No, he does not. And, you know, related to opening up with the Snapter, I I sort of felt like in this section in particular, the Snapters have not always corresponded to what's going on in in the chapter. Right, there have been some where they did. Correct. But in this case, I specifically think it does. Absolutely. Yeah. My second note is Renarin likes rubbing that box. <laughs> How did I not even go there? I went all clinical with it. Yeah, right. It's it's a metal. I was like, box. oh, he's stimming. You know, that's something and yeah. people on the on the spectrum do. They uh, will fiddle with things or make noises or whatever to calm themselves down. Yeah. But you're right. He's fiddling with the box. He likes rubbing that box. <laughs> he likes rubbing that box. It's a metal box. Mm-hmm. So like Lita Ford? I guess. <laughs> what is the most metal of all the boxes? Wendy O. Williams, clearly. <laughs> Everybody knows that. The uh, chick who was in Guar. That's a pretty metal box. That's a metal box right there. I mean, that's serious. Mm-hmm. Did I ever tell you the story about when a friend of ours met the guitar player from Guar? I don't think you have. Because he came into his bar and asked for a job. But he had uh, three gin and tonics while he was there asking for the job. Oh, no. <laughs> and he didn't get hired. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. It's a clicky box. Yes, a clicky box. 
Click, click. Don't judge. I'm not here to judge. I mean, it, it takes all kinds. I just, <laughs> I've just never experienced that personally. <laughs> Something that made me laugh in this chapter was Kaladin being curious about what book Adolin is reading. So Adolin's paging through something and he's like, well, that's interesting because most men, Alethi men are, that's, that's very taboo to even be looking at something that looks like a book because that's a female thing. So he kind of sneaks around to see what it is and it's a fashion magazine. <laughs> so that's pretty funny. It's the Alethi equivalent of Tiger Beat. <laughs> right. uh, more like men's health, I think. GQ. Probably GQ. like GQ. Yeah. yeah. It's the Alethi equivalent of GQ. Well, that was another note I had too. It's right after that, he sort of continues the, his unnecessary jackassery. Right. Being like, I forget precisely what he says. I don't have it in front of me, but he's like, huh, the middle of a high storm and all you're concerned about are your fashions, you mm-hmm. know? Like, why? <laughs> at, at the same time, why does Adolin have to continually call him bridge boy? Oh, agreed. You know, yeah, they, a, they definitely have this antagonistic thing going on. One thing I want to bring up that I intended to bring up last time, but it's just as appropriate this time, is that this antagonistic, competitive race to be the alpha dog between these two, in my opinion, makes both of the characters look weaker. I would absolutely agree. And I think that it's meant to like something about, I, I think Adolin just encapsulates everything about light eyes at Kaladin that rubs Kaladin the wrong way, even though he's not, he's not evil or corrupt, but he's just, he's just spoiled rotten. Yeah. And Adolin is just not used to being talked down to the way he was. Uh, by Kaladin on the battlefield. So yeah, I think it's it's a deliberate obstacle for each of the characters that they're going to have to overcome. Yeah, agreed. And I sort of feel like it can't help, like Dalinar can't help but notice it. And he points it out right in the next chapter, or it might be in this one. Oh, it is in this one, the end of this one. However, like, you know that that's going to make him think less of Kaladin. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, you know, a degree of immaturity. Right. That's unnecessary. Yeah, he calls him out for it in, in this yeah, chapter. Yeah, he does. Yeah, I'm glad he did. And I thought it was interesting that Kaladin still doesn't know about Dalinar's visions. He knows that he's having some sort of fits during the high storms, but he doesn't know what what's going on. Yeah, what they're about. And you forget about. about that because we've known about that from the beginning. The other thing I thought was interesting is Kaladin notes that he's always exhausted if the high storms come at night. Right. So it appears like there's some link between him and the storm itself. Wouldn't be surprising. He saw the storm father rode on a storm. It's just another thing to note. So what do we think about Dalinar's reaction to what Kaladin tells him about Amaram? Well, I think it's an appropriate reaction. I agree. Yeah. You know, you come forward and you make an accusation like that without any way to back it up. And I was surprised that he made the accusation here. It didn't seem like he was going to go that far and show that much trust 
in Dalinar. But I'm excited that he does appear to be showing some degree of trust to Dalinar and kind of opening up and talking about things. Right. Unfortunately, then, when Dalinar doesn't respond by immediately clapping Amram and Irons, Kaladin's like, oh, well, I knew that was not going to work. And and Syl's like, well, he kind of seemed to listen to you. Like, what what did you want him to say right off the bat? You know, he's going to look into it. But uh, Kaladin's like, I knew I couldn't trust it. It's interesting because despite all the outward progress we've seen Kaladin make when changing his life circumstances, he's still kind of a mess on the inside. You know, he's really, really still struggling to trust Dalinar and um, still kind of calls him out on it. And she says, I thought things would be better since you're not, you know, a slave who's about to die. (laughs) I thought, and she says to him, you're not a skybreaker. Of course, we don't know what a skybreaker is. Well, just file that away. But uh, it's interesting because his growth is, it's actually kind of a very real person growth trajectory. You know, he's not this straight line up like, oh, I have a turning point and I never backslide and everything just, you know, just goes on smoothly. Yeah, I mean, this chapter ends like on just several down beats in a row. Mm Mm-hmm. Dalinar reacts appropriately, but again, as you said, he doesn't f- fall over himself to apologize for Amram's action. Sill calls him out. Then he goes and gets confronted by Shen mm-hmm. in another unfortunate moment, and then it gets worse. What's really interesting is that Kaladin is does not seem aware of the hypocrisy in condemning Dalinar for his reaction when he then has to turn around and kind of do the same thing to Shen. Yeah. You know, so he lays this huge bomb on Dalinar concerning someone who Dalinar once considered his own, one of his only allies. You know, Dalinar's got everyone in the war camps turned against him except for Amaram. Yeah. And now here's his new captain telling him that Amaram's a piece of crap and that he's a murderer and he wants Dalinar to go, you know, who knows, arrest him. So he's like, oh my gosh. So he's like, well, okay, chill out. Let me talk to him. Let me figure this out. You know, for, and Kaladin's like, oh, that's the worst. <laughs> you know, then Shen comes to Kaladin and says, am I bridge four or not? Kaladin says, of course you are. He says, well, then where's my spear? Kaladin's like, well, what do you think? And Shen says, I think I'm still a slave. Now, does Kaladin, but Kaladin's like, well, what am I supposed to do? It'll turn the, it'll turn everybody's situation upside down. And like, everyone's again, like, I can, there's no way I can possibly do the right thing in this situation. Yeah. You know, and he just, he can't see the hypocrisy in saying what he's saying. Yeah, it's a good point. I like it. I did not see that connection. Thank you for pointing that out. You're welcome. It's what we do on this podcast. It is. So we also have to talk about Punio. Oh, <laughs> the mysterious cousin just shows up where he wants to. We all look alike, cuz. We all look alike. So Kaladin comes back to the camp and there's this guy there he doesn't know. And uh, he's like, who are you? Oh, don't mind Punio. He's my cousin. Yeah. And Punio's just like, bridge four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 
Kaladin's he's got the like, t-shirt. He's like, yeah, I told him we needed some more guys. So we just came over from this other army. And Kaladin's like, you know, you can't just do that. You can't just leave your army. Oh, we're Herdazzi and no one can tell us apart anyway. Yeah. I leave once a year. I go home. I come back. No, <laughs> no one, one remembers. <laughs> no one even knows. A little bit of humor Levity to break and, up. And what could be a dark chapter. Right. I want to talk just a little bit more about the conversation with Shen because it's so heartbreaking when we look at it in the context of what we know about dull form, which is, I guess, the form that he's in or the mm-hmm. he's either in dull form or the the absence of form. But from the chapters that we've read from Eshenai's perspective, when she describes dull form, she describes it as being unable to think like your mind is just full of mud or like you're Mm -hmm. just you're just completely in a cloud so like forming sentences forming thoughts is really really difficult so when he sits down and and he's able to articulate and say i think i'm still a slave and he knows what that means it's just like it's really heartbreaking it is you know because we know he can't really understand all the stuff that yeah that Kaladin would explain to him about why the situation is the way it is. And no one's really even like stopped to consider his perspective or what's going on with him or how all of this is affecting him. You know, even after all of the horrible things that they had to do on the battlefield with wearing the Parshendi carapace as armor, which was just destroyed him. It was kind of like, sorry, Sorry, Parshi. Yeah. So it's really heartbreaking. Chapter 23 is called Assassin. The king is fine, but this was no false alarm. The guardrails on his favorite balcony were cut by a shard blade, causing it to collapse when he leaned on it. As far as assassination attempts go, it's convoluted and ineffective. But Dalinar is concerned because it very likely was perpetrated by someone in the king's inner circle. He puts Kaladin and his crew in charge of the king full time. So I thought I'd read the snapter for this one, too. I'm not going to read every single one, but this one has some interesting bits. It says, night form predicting what will be the form of shadows mine to foresee. As the gods did leave, the night form whispered, a new storm will come someday to break a new storm, a new world to make a new storm, a new path to take. The night form listens. So some sort of prognosticating form i guess or Mm -hmm. form that gives them the ability to see the future which we know is there's a very strong taboo against that and that even sill sort of has a a taboo against yeah seeing the future she says that one is of seeing the future is of him i think she said at one point so i thought it was interesting too how um kaladin reacted the same way to elicar being in danger that he did when his men on bridge four were in danger Mm, okay He's already sort of in his mind, Dalinar, his family, Elokar are all sort of part of his crew now. Yes. It's also, I feel like, clear to him that if he is not able to sort of fulfill this mission, he could easily find himself back mm-hmm. on a bridge crew. Mm-hmm. I don't think Dalinar would put him on a bridge crew. But if Dalinar dies or, you know, if Sadius takes over or something else like that happens, he could easily end up in a 
really poor situation again. So, so it's also in his best interest to do so. Mm-hmm. But we have this this harebrained assassination attempt against mm-hmm. the king. We've got somebody who's been chipping away at the stone, which would seem to indicate that somebody who had access to the area over periods of over multiple periods of time. Mm-hmm. Somebody who also wouldn't look out of place being there. Yes. But we also have a shard blade that was used to cut the the railings, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. If you had a shard blade, why would you need to chip away at the bottom? That seems much more obvious and slow and unnecessary if you could if you can cut it along the inside of the top, you could also cut it along the bottom, unless this person only recently got a shard blade. Possibly. I think they also wanted it to, if you cut the entire thing on the bottom, it probably would have just fallen right over. They wanted it to stay up long enough for the cane to come out and lean on it. True. So if it's somebody who has a shard blade, then who in the palace has shard blades? We have... Elicar himself, though this does not seem like the saddle thing at all. So it Elicar himself, Dalinar, Adolin, and Renarin. Those are the only people that we know of in the palace who have shard blades. However, the tricky thing about shard blades is you don't really know who actually has a shard blade until they summon it. Anybody could be walking around with a shard blade. Mm-hmm. And as we know, Roshar is freaking lousy with shard blades. <laughs> Everyone's got a shard blade in their back pocket. So that doesn't really tell us as much as Dalinar would like to think it does. Mm-hmm. Also, Dalinar hears something outside of the king's window during the storm itself. Who did he hear outside of the window? We don't, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But it seems highly unlikely that whoever it was was any it seems it wasn't moash it was, and i mean they weren't like out there in the storm clinging to the side of the building right nobody was out there during the storm correct yeah so it could only be a spren or or a parshendi in storm form or his imagination mm-hmm. it's really all it could be moash and Leighton were there Moash seemed to specifically to want to stick around mm-hmm. and has openly stated that he wants revenge. Mm-hmm. He's also a weird character because unlike all the other slaves, he doesn't have a brand. Right. And he's the only one that doesn't have a brand. And he seems to have a preternatural ability to do all these things more so than anybody else. Mm-hmm. But at the same point in time, it doesn't seem logical to think that he would have a shard blade even if he's not showing it, Mm -hmm. because he's been put in a situation in the whole situation with Dalinar where he was at risk of his life. And you would think if you were at risk of your life, you'd whip out your shard blade. You would whip out your shard blade. So it doesn't seem likely that Moash has a shard blade. So I'm just sort of laying out kind of the elements here. And giving you my thinking about what the hell is actually going on. Mm-hmm. Those are some good thinkings. Who do you think did it? I can't tell you that. 
But I do like at the end where Dalinar and Kaladin are talking about this. And I really like the moment where Dalinar asks Kaladin if he can trust him, kind of looks deep into his eyes. It's a very soulful connection moment. <laughs> There's like Barry White on in the background. Yeah. And uh, But I also like that he basically Can't says... Can't a shard blade, baby. <laughs> oh, I don't know why, I don't know why. I'm just waiting for you to talk so but I can sing. He ba- Can't get enough. <laughs> I'm supposed to be in the background. Bitch. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. So, but he basically says, uh, Dalinar basically says, uh, like, if these incompetent assholes came this close to killing Elokar, what are we going to do when the real assassins right? show yeah. up? It reminds you, and and it's mentioned overtly here in the in the chapter, we still haven't seen Seth you know, 300 or something pages into this book. We have no idea what's going on with that cat. But he's out there, and he's pretty much, you know, like 45 and 0, or however many assassinations he's done. He has yet to lose one. Mm -hmm. So at some point, he's going to show up. We'll see if Taravangian hasn't sent him after Elicar, though. No, he specifically states at the end of Way of Kings that he's sending him to King D- kill Dalinar. Dalinar, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so he, he's on his way. That doesn't seem like Seth's way of assassinating people. Right, I mean, it's pretty clear that it was, this This was an, at a very small chance of success. This was definitely done by someone that didn't really know what they were doing. Yes. I will tell you at the end who it was. All right. Did you notice, uh, so Kaladin, in keeping with his character where, where he is right now in his arc, he has this little uh, call of the void moment. You ever had that? Where he's standing on the balcony oh, and just for yeah. a second he leans out. And uh, Moash is like, God, what are you doing? Like, get, yeah. get away from there. Have you ever had that happen? It's called a lapel du vide. That's why I can't stand to be, I can't stand heights anymore. It's interesting. I actually read a stu- I went and read a study on this. Of course you did. <laughs> so I have some facts if you want. I do. I do. And remind, I have a point about it too. But, but it's so interesting. A lot of us have had this feeling of like either you're standing on a, a tall building and for a second you think about jumping or maybe you're driving and for a second you think about just driving into traffic and you're like, you'd never do that, but you're like, what the hell was that? Oh, yeah. So there have been studies about it. I looked at one done by someone named April Smith. She's a professor at Miami University in Ohio. And like she said, over 50% of the people surveyed had had one of these experiences i think it might be more than that yeah it seems like most people i've talked to have had that happen at least once but um she hypothesized that it results from like a miscommunication in your brain so basically Mm. something happens that's that scares your brain into kind of being hyper aware of your surroundings so your brain goes like oh crap i'm on a tall building yeah and then goes into some kind of post hoc rationalization for why it was startled into awareness like that because you know you're safe so it's sort of a there must be somebody chasing me right or i must have wanted to jump you know it's like this like split second reaction to to your reaction to danger so it's just like some weird misfiring 
that happens in your brain when you react suddenly to a sense of danger. That's interesting. It's certainly happened to me. What I think is interesting, and just a little bit about me, and then we'll get back to the story, is when I was younger, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I was in my 20s even, I loved heights. Mm -hmm. I loved climbing. You know, I was the kid who would climb like 40-foot trees. I loved, you know, I used to climb in the antenna of one of our trucks in the Army, which was like 70 feet in the air. I loved to be on cliffs. I loved it. Danger Boy Dukes. Danger Boy Dukes. I am now terrified of heights. Terrified of them. And where, you know, and I don't know where that came from. And it sort of popped up out of nowhere. I remember. Yeah. Because I was driving over the Bay Bridge, which is this very, very tall bridge. And halfway over it, I just started to panic. And then I had to do some stupid team building exercise for work that involved <laughs> that climbing a, a tree. <laughs> That's a good one. And I volunteered to go first because I wanted to get it over with. And as soon as I got up there, I was like, get me the hell down from here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> so, I, you know, I don't know if that has anything to do with what you're talking about. I presume it doesn't. But why does that happen? Why does that happen? I don't know. I'll but, read a study. <laughs> and then I'll tell but you about Kaladin it. has always felt this sort of, you know, fondness, this affinity, this this love, this um, draw to the big wide open spaces, which is interesting because it's right after Syl tells us you'll never be a sky warden or whatever. Skybreaker. Skybreaker. And then right after that, we have this incident with him. It also... We also know that there were radiants who would fly through the sky by right. changing, changing gra moving gravity around. Right. So is that foreshadowing that that's what he's going to be able to do? It might Seems be. Seems like it. Uh, yeah. I mean, it says here that even before gaining his special abilities, heights had always fascinated him and made him feel liberated. I, me too. Mm -hmm. But uh, then I turned 40. So, right? so don't. Don't get used to it. The chapter 24 is called Tin. I'm not going to read this snapter, but it describes decay form, and it sounds pretty awful. Shallan's caravan is on its way. Gaz and some of the other deserters talk to her about why they left the army. These men are desperately loyal to Shallan, except for Vatha, who's particularly cynical about their situation. Shallan has an interesting dinner with Tin, the leader of the caravan's guards. She assumes that Shallan is a con artist and offers to help her learn what she needs to know to continue her scam at the Shattered Plains. She tells Shallan that she has contacts with the most important movers and shakers in the Shattered Plains underworld. And she asks to be included in Shallan's scheme. Shallan, desperate for resources and unsure of her prospects when she reaches the plains, accepts Tin's offer. Looks like we're heading to con artist school. Oh, yes. Always ding, ding, wanted. Ding, ding, classes in session. I've always wanted fantasy novel about a bunch of con artists. Have you? Always wanted that. If only someone would write one. If only somebody would write the first three books of a series. <laughs> and then... I don't know. 
maybe continue writing the rest of them. How do you think Shalon would do up against Locke Lamora? Uh, she would get her ass kicked. She would definitely get her butt handed to her. Handily. <laughs> She'd be taken advantage of in so many ways. <laughs> He'd have all her spheres out from under her. Oh my goodness. 45 minutes. He would have, he would pick up a, pick up a parchment and crack them open. And inside there would be like a whole <laughs> kit. Be like, but he was just walking around seconds ago. That's what you thought. You know, the carbonara effect oh don't get me started <laughs> on the carbonara effect <laughs> I now i'm gonna do to it to you, you cringe. <laughs> rewind no <laughs> censored censored <laughs> now you're getting censored so i see there being three sort of beats in this chapter mm-hmm. one of which you didn't mention so we have the conversation with the the deserters and slaves with Shalon. Right. We have the conversation with Tin, but in between there, Shalon has a pretty important conversation with Pattern. Yes, I do have some notes on that conversation. Gotcha. That's where that's pretty much where all of my notes stem. Right. Well, let's start by talking about the deserters and where yes. they're at now, because that's a pretty drastic transformation. Yeah. Do you buy that? In this book, yeah. Um, I do too. I just yeah, was curious yeah. as to your reaction. So the thing the thing about it is you almost have to take your own personal opinions aside mm-hmm. and think about the author and the world that they've sort of created. You know, and Brandon Sanderson has these incredibly high fantasy, grandiose worlds where things are more black and white than a lot of other more modern fantasy would be mm-hmm. in terms of who the good guys and the bad guys are. But most of the characters seem to be less duplicitous and manipulative and cynical than characters you would find in a lot of other books. Mm-hmm. That sort of colors everything to me. You know, when I, when Gaz is like, oh, it sure feels, you know, good to not be living a lie anymore, mm-hmm. you know. I'm like, yeah, that's I take him at face value. Right. Well, it's interesting that we got in the last book a very brief point of view section through Gaz's eyes. Yeah. So, I think that's interesting that then he this much later he comes back around and it is. as a more important character. And we get almost a redemption arc. I think it's so cool that Shallan's powers include the ability to transform someone's self-concept, you know? So she uses her skills, you know, she has access to the surges of illumination and transformation. Yes. And, you know, the outset, she looked at that as being able to, you know, make these disguises and then also do soul casting, but she's transformed these men through a reframing of the truth. Yes, and she gets in this argument with Vatha, mm-hmm. and you know, and he says those are pretty words or something to that effect. And she says, right. she says, I find words to be among the most powerful things. In fact, no transformation ever occurs that isn't spoken about or talked about mm-hmm. first. Right, it's the thing that instigates it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I thought that was a pretty 
I thought that was a pretty interesting quote and apropos to the situation. And it's something that I sort of enjoy about Shalon's character. Mm-hmm. I still don't know where I stand on Shalon, mm-hmm. having talked about how Brandon Sanderson's characters seem to be more black and white, mm-hmm. more in comparison to, say, George R. R. Martin or Joe Abercrombie. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they are black and white. I'm saying they tend to be a little bit more on that spectrum. I still don't really know how I feel about Shalon. Mm-hmm. And clearly we have duplicitous characters in the novel. I think it's interesting when we've been talking about Warbreaker and the magic system on that world is very visceral. The powers that those characters had, you know, they have life sense, they have color and tone perception. It's really strongly tied to the body and, and the physical senses. And we know that that was deliberate, but I just think it's interesting how the powers in Stormlight are very cognitive. They're tied to decision-making, ideas, thought processes. They're almost mathematical in terms of binding and gravity shifting. and Right. And I think that's cool because it makes sense because the magic on, on the, the planet that Warbreaker takes place in is invested in each individual's body. So each person on that planet, if you haven't read it or we're going to release our coverage on that. It'll Soon. happen. It'll happen. Hold your horses. But without giving any way of plot points, the the magic on that world is invested into each human who lives on it, a little piece of it in their bodies. And then it's called breath and they can give it away or buy it or trade it or steal it, whatever. But but then because of that, it's this very visceral magic system. Very, very kind of gritty feeling. And but the magic on Roshar comes from this Nahel bond, which is a bond with a human and a living idea. So the fact that the powers are all very like tied to thoughts, tied to ideas is a very cognitive feeling to mm-hmm. it. I just think it's so cool. Yeah. It's, it's really unique. I don't disagree. I've heard people say, and I don't disagree that Brandon Sanderson has the most interesting and unique magic systems of any fantasy author ever. I I would agree with that. I mean, based on my limited, you know, reading within mm-hmm. the genre, in my experience, I would say that's true. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think Brandon Sanderson is the best fantasy author. I think he's a very good fantasy author, and I think he has the best magic systems because they are not only just interesting and unique on the on the face of them mm-hmm. in terms of what is superficial, but because of what you say, the degree to which, and it's just becoming clear in this novel, the degree to which there's sort of all this underlying subtlety to it mm-hmm. and how it drives people's uh, personal growth and, and mirrors their personal growth and, and all of these sort of things that you, you don't generally see in fantasy novels. So... Mm-hmm. I think he does an amazing job with that. It's pretty cool. It's pretty groovy. So let's talk about Shalon's conversation with Pattern. They start off kind of with this like, is truth relative kind of abstract discussion. And then he brings up the talking a little bit more about the void bringers. And they talk kind of about the nature of Spren and talk about its power that's been fragmented. Yeah, he tells her that spren are shattered power that is given thought 
by the perceptions of men. And there, and then he says that the power that's shattered is from honor, cultivation, and odium. And I think it's interesting if you, those seem to be sort of like the three gods, right? Mm -hmm. And for, I'm using quotations for gods because gods could be multiple things in in this world. It's, it's a little bit unclear, but they seem to be sort of the three main metaphysical powers that are not just out in the open. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you think about it and you think about what are sort of the three most unique sort of cultures that we've seen in this world, we have the Alethi, and all of the cultures that sort of surround them, like the folks of Yaakoved and um, Natanatan, who are relatively similar. We have the people of Shinobar and the people on the far western side. I think I said west earlier when mm-hmm. I meant east. Uh, people on the far western side of the continent. And then, you know, are similar, a little bit closer to the Shinobar, a little less like the Alethi. And then we have the listeners, the Parshendi. And you can sort of put all three of them in line with one of the three gods, you know, mm-hmm. honor and the alethi, cultivation and the shin, odium and the listeners. You know, these three kind of cultural pillars of Roshar, they all kind of line up. Good observation. So I have a quick note bef- that happens so I have a quick note on something that happens between this conversation with Pattern and before she goes to talk to Tin. Mm-hmm. We've talked, gone back and forth a little bit on the Facebook group page about slavery and the idea of Shalon having these slaves and not just freeing them. So I thought this was interesting and I just kind of... Um, wrote down the quote where she sees a couple of her slaves and is, and she says that uh, they'd seemed accustomed to labor and they seemed frightened by the idea that she was paying them pittance though it was, it would see most of them freed in under two years. They were obviously uncomfortable with that idea. So that, that was interesting to note. I also made some notes in that section. Mm hmm. My first observation was that she thinks of them as slaves. Yes. So a person who has expressed the importance of words and language and mm-hmm. and how much that can frame reality, she thinks of them as slaves. Mm-hmm. They're now, not only does she think of them as slaves, she thinks of them now as her slaves. Mm-hmm. So she's aware of these people in sort of that context Mm -hmm. does not make any effort to sort of change it. Now, I don't want to be overly critical about it. Mm -hmm. She sees something. She's grown up around slaves. Mm -hmm. They're slaves. She's young Mm -hmm. to her mind. The fact that there could be another reality hasn't seemed to really dawn on her, Mm -hmm. but it's interesting to me that she would see them in that light. And then I think the observation that they seem afraid to be released stems from that because her perception is that they are slaves. So I think one begets the other, Mm -hmm. not necessarily that our observations are correct. Mm, Interesting. Because there could be a million things that they're unsettled about. 
Do they have any faith of what's going to happen to them when they get to the Shattered Plains? Mm-hmm. Like these, these are slaves who are being transported for sale. Yes, they're probably anxious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, unless she's had some conversation with them, mm-hmm. which we haven't seen on the page, then uh, why would her observation about that be any more relevant than... Mm-hmm than any other supposition she puts on them. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. I feel like Brandon Sanderson, he's setting Shalon up to being able to arrive at the Shattered Plains with a retinue. But here he wanted to be like, but she's not a bad guy for keeping the slaves. You know, I could be wrong there. Yeah. Anyway, let's go on to the conversation with Tin. What did you what did you think about all that? Her tin's assumption and Shalon's reaction. So one, the whole concept of of Brandon Sanderson sort of putting a con artist in the middle of this situation, I thought was interesting and unexpected. So yeah. I I enjoyed it from that perspective. I didn't have a lot of thoughts about Tin herself. Right. But what I did think was that Shalon played that about as well as she could have mm-hmm. for walking into a situation and being surprised by it. I'm sure it it never crossed her mind mm-hmm. either that this would even be a thing for her to realize it sort of take what she's already been pondering and learning from Yasna and learning about people and mm-hmm. perception and then to be able to sort of spin it on the fly recognize what was happening and just roll with it, mm-hmm. I thought showed showed some craftiness. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I just was curious as to whether you thought that too. So chapter 25 is called Monsters. The Snapter describes something called smoke form, which sounds pretty handy. The Snapter says that smoke form Form, though crafted of gods, it was by unmade, capital U, hand, leaves its force to be but of one, leaves its force to be but of one of foe or friend. Yeah, I don't know what the hell that Just put a pin in it. (laughs) Kaladin is learning to ride a horse. It doesn't go well. He's placed on an old, easygoing mare, and he does all right. But when Adolin teasingly points out a more spirited, unbroken mount, Kaladin has to give it a try. He manages to stick himself to the saddle with Stormlight long enough to impress the onlookers, but then he gets his clocked cleaned when he's thrown. Dalinar tells Kaladin that he wants the bridgeman to patrol outside the camp for a while, and Kaladin digs into the mysterious attack on the king. This chapter stinks of horse dung. Does it? It not not a whole lot happens. It's not the best chapter. Yeah, I mean it's kind of uh it, it was kind of it's a way to, yeah. to get Kaladin and his men outside of the camp. Like they needed to go somewhere, and I think probably Brandon Sanderson didn't just want to be like, oh, and then well, or, or also, tack it on to the last chapter, you know. There's some conversations with um it's not Leighton, it's not Drahe. Jeanette? Oh no. Um oh okay. Na- not NAFTA. One of the Bridgemen. Yeah, one of the Bridgemen. Where you can see that he's setting up Dalinar's suspicions. 
Mm-hmm. So that is sort of, I think, the most important kind of plot character related thing in the chapter amongst all this backdrop of all these horses. What I think is sort of interesting, we just talked about Brandon Sanderson and his superior magic systems, and I do think it's super cool. What I think is interesting about this world is how incredibly alien it is, and yet there are certain sort of staples of the genre that he finds necessary to 100% have to put in there strictly from an aesthetic purpose. Like what? Like shard blade and and a six foot sword. Okay. And horses. Like there's a reason for that. Sorry. There's a reason for that. But you don't know what it is. Yet. I don't know what it I is. I shouldn't yet. do that. I shouldn't do that. I'm sorry. It's just too exciting. And everyone else who's read all of the books is going, Oh How do they have horses but not cows? Because some alien visitor dropped off horsey seeds and planted them in Shinovar? <laughs> is this like... I can't tell you. Is this like when horses ended up on the North American continent over the Asian la- Asiatic land bridge, except across planets? Nobody tell him, you guys. He has to read it and find out. So my only other question that I have in this chapter is what... In Brandon Sanderson's world, would cause a light-eyed woman to want to throw a rock at Adolin. I can't imagine. I mean, did he move the bookmark from her Archie comics? Did he hold her hands at the movie, but later he danced with Anadola instead, that bitch? <laughs> or did he ask to see her stables? And then go in and insult her attack and harness. <laughs> He's doing air quotes, you guys. Yeah. A lot of air quotes over here. Yeah, I just I don't have a I don't have a whole lot to say. It seems in here the conversation with the other Bridgman is trying to set Dalinar up to wrestle with suspicion about Moash. I think you keep saying Dalinar. I think you mean Kaladin. I do mean Kaladin. I'm sorry. Um, his, Kaladin's conversation with uh, one of the other bridgemen who was there the night of the assassination. He talks to him, talks about Moash, and he's like, oh, it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't Moash doesn't make sense, but it seems to be setting up some suspicion there. And that's really the only, that's the most important point to me from this chapter. We at Kaladin realizes that the railing must have been sabotaged after the storm. Otherwise, it would have just been blown over. And that narrows down the list of subjects or suspects. And and I think, too, probably I'm speculating at some point, someone pointed out to Brandon Sanderson that like, hey, so Brandon Sanderson wants these guys obviously out of the camp for whatever reason. And like they would need to be on horses and hey, they wouldn't know how to ride horses. That's crazy. Also, maybe just to kind of highlight the difference between the light eyes and the dark eyes and people of means and people without. And to emphasize how rare and expensive horses are. Yeah. Okay. So chapter 26 is called The Feather. This snapter reads, They blame our people for the loss of that land. The city that once covered it did range the eastern strand. The power made known in the tomes of our clan. Our gods were not who shattered these plains. 
We see Adolin fighting the Parshendi. He's joined the fight of another high prince in an attempt to show the benefits of cooperation. He runs into Eshenai on the battlefield and is shocked when she addresses him. She asks to speak to Dalinar and tells Adolin she will send a messenger. Renarin has a freezing spell as soon as he summons his shard blade and ends up being useless in the battle. Jackamoff gives Adolin some advice for scoring a duel. Jackamoff. Jackamoff, which is a fitting name for that character. Could you think of a better? No, very appropriate. Listeners, if it's not pronounced Jackamoff, don't tell me. Don't, yeah. <laughs> Let us have this one, all right? So I've decided that Jackamoff, it gets funnier every time you say it out loud. I didn't really bother to pronounce it out loud. And now that I have, he's now my favorite character. <laughs> so I was thinking that Jackamoff was the Regina George of the Shattered Plains. Mm, but gotcha. instead, I think he's the Gretchen Wiener. Oh, well, yeah. I, I think Sadius is the Regina George. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I hear his hair is so big because it's full of secrets. <laughs> I heard that one year... Sadius told Jackamoff that he couldn't wear hoop earrings anymore because that was his thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then for Hanukkah, Jackamoff's parents got him a really pair of really expensive white gold hoops and he had to pretend like he didn't like them. <laughs> God, Heather, what's your damage? <laughs> How many Mean Girls references do you think you can get? I've got a whole page. <laughs> I'm just waiting to work them in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> see, see if you can drop them in. So there's a battle. They're fighting. These guys are fighting, The right? important part. I mean, long description of the geography, which mm -hmm. in my mind only exists to serve one purpose, to remind us that the goddamn Alethi are blind. Mm. It's like there's clearly something like beneath the creme. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that weird pyramid-shaped hill. It's Almost looks like tiers. a building. Almost looks man-made, you know? Yeah, yeah. But oh, yeah, that, well. That was a little, um, it, it was a little on the nose to have that snapter, you know, describing the city that once yeah. stood here. And then, you know, mm. oh, look at that weird pyramid. I'm sure it's a natural formation. Of course. It was strange that, you know, they just split the rock formation mm -hmm. naturally in two like that. You know that's that's frustrating <laughs> but um but really the important point is that ash and i shows up and asks for an opportunity to parlay with dalinar so we'll see how we'll see what comes of that and then the other two kind of important points are renarin mm -hmm. and the fact that adolin gets rebuffed in his attempt to try to have any sort of social interaction with any of the other princes Hey, you know what? Jackamoff can't help that people are so jealous of him. He can't help it that he's so popular. <laughs> I wish I had I wish I had more Mean Girls references that I could share with you, but I just don't <laughs> I just don't speak that language. <laughs> so what do you think what do you think is up with Renarin? Well, I had one major observation about his fit that he has. Okay. Which is that it occurs immediately after summoning his shard blade. Yes. 
So everything was fine. He draws. They're going to go out and support uh, support the bridges before they somebody you know they get counterattacked. And on their way out there, he summons his shard blade. Then he freezes and has his fit. Now, what does that mean? It's not the only time this has happened. Mm-hmm. So, is this being caused by the shard blade? Probably not, because the shard blade until relatively recently didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Is it being exacerbated by the shard blade? Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I do have some theories about Renarin that I'll get to in my predictions. Oh, I can't wait. I cannot wait. You can raise your hand if you've ever, ever felt personally victimized by Toriel Sadias. <laughs> I'm raising my I'm hand. I'm done. I'm done. Okay. <laughs> Chapter 27 is called Fabrications to Distract. It's a flashback on Shalon five years ago. Shalon is in the garden teaching herself to draw. She still has frequent dissociative spells, and her brothers worry that her mind is broken. Her family is falling apart, with Hilarion disappearing to mysterious destinations, Balat setting fires, and Jushu gambling and drinking his pain away. Shalon goes inside to get ready for yet another party. As she passes by her father's rooms, she is distracted by a glowing light coming from her father's strongbox. It's a light that only she can see. She calls it a monster. She calls it her mother's soul. What the hell? What a creepy way to end the section, right? It is, yeah. This is a short chapter. And other than that piece at the end, it just sort of deepens what's going on with Shalom. Mm-hmm. It doesn't give us a lot of new information, but it sort of, it deepens our understanding of her mental state. Mm-hmm. At this point, she hasn't been locked away in rooms yet either. Right. Which tells me that there's something else that's going to happen mm-hmm. in the backstory that's going to lead to them essentially locking her in the tower. It's it's strange because it's hard to reconcile Shalon in the flashbacks as being the same person as Shalon in the present day. Because she's, you know, in the flashbacks, we see her so completely broken, so ba- barely able to carry on a conversation. And in the, you know, the present day, she's she's witty, she's competent. Um, that being said, I just enjoy Shalon's flashbacks so much more than the ones in the last book. Oh, yes. You know, it they're so it's one of my favorite parts of this book are the flashbacks and the mysteries surrounding her family and what what all went on there. I think it's so interesting. I feel like Kaladin's flashbacks read like a like a fantasy hero setup story. You yeah. know, like mm-hmm. he never really fit in with the common men and he, you know, something has to happen to his family but we don't know what and it just felt it felt kind of a little formulaic to me personally. I would agree with that. But um, Shalons are so interesting. Yeah, yeah. Shalons' backstory is far more interesting than than Kaladin's, with, without a doubt. It's not even close. But yeah, so we kind of, as we said, we get a deepening of that understanding, and then we get the piece of evidence at the end where she asks Jushu about the box and the light, and he's like what the hell are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Now that's just a deepening of the mystery. Like I, I can't even begin to guess at what the hell 
it might be other than a spren. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really fit in neatly with anything else we've learned so far Mm -hmm. that I can see, unless I'm missing something. Just have to keep reading. I don't know. Maybe that's Odium himself trapped in a box. I'm trying to think of a dick in a box joke, but I... (laughs) It's too late. I think it's very interesting to read some of the interviews with Brandon Sanderson where people ask him questions. So one of the things he'll say, though, is RAFO, which is read and find out, which means he doesn't want to answer because it'll give something away. But it's interesting to look at how well thought out his systems are, his plots are, you know, people come at him with crazy questions, you know, like if a magic user from this world came to this one, what would happen if this and that, you know, and he's just like, well, blah, 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 you know, (laughs) and it's, it's mind boggling how intricately plotted all of this, this stuff is. It's impressive. Are you ready to answer some questions from our listeners? Yes, I am. Brian McClure asks, what's your favorite quote from this week's section? So for me, it is Shalon's statement about words and the power of words when she's talking with Vatha. For me, I liked it when uh, Jack Moff asked Adolin what his wig was made out of, and Adolin said, your mom's chest hair. <laughs> I'm kidding. That it was, was the not same. in the book. <laughs> it was the same as yours. Yeah, that this Shalon's basically her uh, her zingers to Vatha. Mm-hmm. You know, when she says, you know, I- I'm surprised you're not used to being wrong more often. Yeah. You know, She's that like, kind of stuff. Don't accidentally insult. You don't want to accidentally insult a man. She's like, oh, I never intended to accidentally insult you. Right. Brian also asks, do you think Dalinar believes Kaladin? You, you, really you should answer yeah. that, I actually. I don't think Dalinar thinks of it that way. I think he's simply gathering more evidence, and he'll mm-hmm. he'll make an opinion when he actually has some evidence. Uh, that's the way I would react if somebody came to me, and I've had, I've never had somebody come and tell me that somebody was a murderer, mm-hmm. but I've had, you know, I've been in positions where somebody's had to come to me and, and say, I need you to know this about this person or this is what happened. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I, my initial reaction is not to have a reaction, right? Not to make a judgment until I figure things out. So I suspect that's what Dalinar is doing as well. Brian McClure also says, do you feel like you understand Spren any better after Shalon's conversation with pattern? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And not not to be overly short about it, but I think the more we get explanations and each of them paints just a little bit more of the happy tree, I can see the forest. Mm-hmm. Ian Trezise says, in chapter 22, Lights in the Storm, uh, what do you think about Kaladin seeing uh, red spheres and having the impression of eyes? So it seems clear to me that it's it's odium spren. It's just more of the process of the void bringers returning. Whether or not it is specifically a Parshendian storm form, I can't say. Mm-hmm. 
that wouldn't shock me, but it's certainly something to do with void bringers specifically. Ian Trezise also says, Shalon with her sharp tongue and Gaz, Red, and Vatha's banter was entertaining. I agree. I also thought that Gaz and his take of what they were fighting for eventually changed mirrors real-life wars in many ways. Also agree. Uh, remembering back in The Way of Kings and Chad wondering, do all Alethi think this war for gem hearts makes any sense for the Vengeance Pact? Kudos to Chad recognizing this early. Any thoughts on how Shalan is viewed and treated and Gaz's take on the war with the Parshendi? Yeah, I think Shalan is pretty consistently underestimated at this point. It seems to me, my impression was that the men, not the slaves, but the men of the deserters, minus Vatha, have a, a very reverential stance on her because they've given, because she's given them something back. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a hope and a reason to move on and move forward. So I feel like they treat her, I feel like they don't underestimate her. I feel like they probably overestimate her in this instance, which is we sort of see the way people are reacting to Shalon start to change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think Gaz's take on the war with the Parshendi, I mean, it's fairly accurate and straightforward. Mm-hmm. I'm actually a little bit surprised I felt like Gaz would have a lot more reason to bitch. Mm -hmm. You know, he was, I mean, he was really put in a shitty situation Mm -hmm. before he decided to, to, to abandon. I mean, he was going to get killed anyway. So, and he doesn't really bring that up. So Mm -hmm. uh, I, that's sort of my observations about that. Ian also asks with more knowledge of the spiritual, cognitive and physical realms, any thoughts or theories on Shalon and Pattern's conversation about Spren being power, shattered power, power given through uh, power given thought by perceptions of men, honor, cultivation, and odium fragments broken off? Now, we forgot to bring up the I- difference between the spiritual and the, and the cognitive realm. That was a quick comment that Shalon made, but I thought it was interesting. And she says that when they're talking about truth being absolute or not, she says that in the spiritual realm is a place of absolute truth, but the cognitive realm is supposedly more fluid. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, whether or not that's accurate, we don't know, but the logic behind it makes sense. Right. Uh, I feel like we we discussed this at right. some length in the chapter, so I'll move on. But Ian also asks, is tin good or bad for Shalon? Do you have any predictions about 10? I do have a prediction about 10. Mm-hmm. So I'll save that for the predictions. My take is that it would be more positive for Shalon than negative. All right. I'll, le- I'll leave it at that for now. Gordon Ross says, if the safe hand is always the left, what do you think happens to left-handed females on Roshar? They have a hard time masturbating. Shut up. That is exactly what I was going to say. Is it? Our brains are melding. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, that, that's what popped into my head. Uh, but Ian Trezise to that says, you know, Monty Python, burn them. And uh, other listeners commented, said they're probably forced to use the right hand. Of course. Absolutely. 
kind of crazy world would do that <laughs> other than ours. Yeah, exactly. Other than our own. Eric Allgaier says, if Kaladin and Adolin were to settle their differences with an old school rap battle, A, who would win? And B, would it be, to quote the Duchess, off the chain? <laughs> All right, A, Adolin would win, and B, it would be off the chain. Yeah, I agree. Kaladin is too much of an overthinker yep. to be good at, in a rap battle. You you cannot overthink. Oh, it's good. Is that from your experience and all those? My extensive rap battles experience. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, <laughs> one of the first times I met you, you had to rap. You, you know what? I did. I did have to rap, and I was good at it. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> Ian Trezee says, regarding the wild horse dream storm, was it a bit of pride with Adolin's remarks to him or was Kaladin being wise and thinking of Zahel's words to become familiar with horses like shard blades and overcome his fears? We didn't kind of talk about that, no. but Kaladin did have a brief moment where uh, he realizes that he wants to learn to ride this horse so that because it's a good tool, but that it's kind of hypocritical of him to also have turned down Zahel's offer of training. And it's brought on because Adolin razzes him and says, if you really want to ride a horse, go ride this crazy nightmare mm -hmm. beast over here. I don't want to, I don't want to sound like a broken record and I don't want to cop out, but I really don't think it, I think it was not necessarily either. I think it was a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't think anything Kaladin is doing at this moment, as it relates really to any of his interactions with Adolin, is wise. You know, going over there and, like, I believe him when he says that he is doing it because he recognizes the value. He doesn't want to be a hypocrite. He wants to be effective. So I definitely believe that is the main motivating factor. But he has all the wisdom of any 20-year-old man when he basically glues himself to the saddle and says, oh, let's see what the fuck happens. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, he could have broken his neck there very easily. Yeah, he was full of stormlight. <sighs> he probably would have come back. Yeah. His neck would have glued itself, his head back to his body. <laughs> but did he die? No. No, he didn't. He didn't. Ian Trezise also says, is Jakimov a way in for Adolin to make an alliance with him and the other high princes, or is Sadius one step ahead and has corrupted a lot of them? I don't think jacking anybody off is going to make him any friends. <laughs> I disagree. I mean, that's that's not men's activity, apparently. It's in the <laughs> in the book, you know. Apparently he has to jack him off with a feather. <laughs> I'm serious. Don't tell me if it's not pronounced Jackamaw. <laughs> Audiobook listeners can just deal. <laughs> Brian McClure says, do you think Yasna's explanation for the gods and the spren are the same as what Pattern revealed? Or are they different? I, I mean, obviously, like you said before, information about the spren is being slowly revealed kind of layer by layer. So I think it's just a deeper understanding of what we were told before. 
Ian Trezis says, is there something more with Renarin than just fitting in in regards to him not wearing his spectacles? And Theogram Brown says, I have a feeling the evil spren got in him. That's a good theory. I'll talk more about that in my predictions. All right. Ian also says, how about Kaladin questioning and finding out about Moash staying a little longer on guard duty, even without a shard blade, he was seen on the balcony. Is it a red herring or is there something to it? Again, I'm going to touch on that in my, in my predictions. Ian's last question is, what are your thoughts on Shalon staring into the light saying there hid a monster, there hid mother's soul. Man, I ain't got nothing. You got nothing? I got not a thing. I, I think it's kind of cool how Brandon Sanderson's revealing stuff, revealing stuff, and then throws another little mystery on you. I, I mean, I want to, like, if you force me into a prediction, I'm going to say it's somehow related to a spren. Okay. But, I mean, that... I'm not confident about that. It doesn't really fit with any of the other spren related things that we've seen. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. Brian McClure says, Kaladin and Adolin trapped in the elevator together. How long do they start killing each other? Depends on how long the rap battle lasts. (laughs) How how large is the elevator? (laughs) Right. How many rounds of rapper's delight can you play on Muzak before they start running out of rhymes for shard blade? <laughs> Jake support says, uh, could a Kaladin plus Adolin romantic relationship be a thing? Fan art for it exists, but would Sanderson realistically write about queer characters? I don't see that happening with such major characters. Yeah, there's a, a couple of our listeners chime in on the Facebook group page um, about different characters that Sanderson has has written that are meant to, to be that are gay. gay. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, Renette from the Mistborn Era 2 series and Drahi. It does seem like Brandon Sanderson doesn't have a problem having gay characters in his novels. But I don't see him making that a central relationship in the books. Well, I would say with these two characters, there's been, um, it's pretty well established that they've at least attracted to women. Both have talked about women in ways that lead you to believe they're both attracted to women. Theogram Brown says he has a question related to Moash. Do you think he's a bad dude? Does he? Is it possible he's had a shard blade this whole time? Or maybe he's a ghost blood who's been letting in the bad guys. So, I sort of talked about that in the chapter mm-hmm. that you know it's and it's conceivable that anybody could have a shard blade, but I I have a hard time thinking anybody on Bridge Four would have had a shard blade at least the ones who were involved in the Sadius Dalinar battle, Mm -hmm. because their lives were all threatened. Several of them died in that process. You would think you would in threat of your life like that. You think you would reveal that. Mm -hmm. It's not to say it's an impossibility, but 
I'm going to say probably no. I've always had the sense that Moash and Kaladin are going to end up as enemies at some point. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I do think it's weird that he is somehow a slave that doesn't have a slave brand. But I think the idea that he's like under deep, deep, deep cover hiding on a bridge crew mm-hmm. seems too far-fetched for me. Mm-hmm. Because again, putting yourself voluntarily at such incredible risk mm-hmm. see, doesn't seem realistic. Now, it could maybe have not been his choice. But again, if that was anybody's plan, what were they thinking they were going to gain by putting somebody on a bridge crew? Mm-hmm. It just... It seems unreasonable to me to think that Moash has been put on a bridge crew as a way of getting close to the king. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, that just doesn't seem right. And if he had a shard blade, he was one of the ones who wanted to escape. Mm -hmm. And if he had a shard blade, he could escape. So I have a hard time thinking that. I do think they'll end up at odds, but I don't think it'll be through anything as as dramatic as all of that. I think it's going to come down to Kaladin's going to start to come around and start letting go of all these resentments. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Moash will. And it's going to be a conflict around how Moash wants to continue to get revenge and Kaladin doesn't. Mm-hmm. That's my prediction. And our last question, Brian McClure asks, would you rather have a shard blade or shard plate? I mean, a shard blade sounds handier to me, but... I would disagree, actually. Really? I would... I think with a shard blade, you would accidentally kill all your friends and family. (laughs) I think you would cut your dining room table in half. I am pretty jumpy late at night if I think I hear a noise in the house. You'd be riding down the road and turn your wrist out in your car and accidentally summon the shard blade and put it uh, through your friend Calvin in the front seat in the middle, <laughs> you know, in the middle of Lemonade by Beyonce. And <laughs> it would it would be bad. Like, no, I think shard plate would be a lot better. Could you imagine playing tennis in shard plate? <laughs> Just dominating bitches <laughs> oh, bam. be awesome that would be awesome so this is not a question but i do want to i do want to point something out from the facebook page ashley ketchum found this image uh titled the gingered plains and the sour tower and it's uh <laughs> it's graham crackers i think mm-hmm. and the little uh sour patch reenacting uh, bridge runs on the shard uh, or on the shattered planes. Pretty, pretty awesome. Actually, it's the uh, battle at the end of way of Kings. That's awesome. It's pretty groovy. Come check it out. All right. Are you ready for predictions? I'm ready. All right. Do you have your tinfoil hat on? I have it on. Okay. So, it seems like Brandon Sanderson wants us to wrestle with who the assassin is. Right. The obvious candidate seems obvious candidates seem to be Moash, mm-hmm. Renarin, and Eshenai. Okay. 
My prediction is the assassin, quote, assassin with the rail is Renarin. Okay. That's my tinfoil hat. I think that Theo is right when Theo suggested that the evil Spren have somehow gotten into him. Since he's gotten that shard blade, it seems like things, his fits, his, you know, have gotten worse. Mm Mm-hmm. I think he's also the only one who would have access without looking out of, out of place mm-hmm. and has a combination of knowing Elicar's patterns. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that Moash has a shard blade. Moash has, has the other things going for him. Mm-hmm. Although if he was chipping away at the railing, I think people and hanging out mm-hmm. outside of the times he's supposed to be there, I think people mm-hmm. would start to question it. But nobody would really question Renarin. Mm-hmm. And people don't pay attention to Renarin because Renarin, it doesn't fit the typical male Alethi mode. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of an afterthought, mm-hmm. you know, and people aren't paying any attention to him. Also, the fact that things were chipped away and then right after he got a shard blade is when this happens, mm-hmm. the timing's a little suspect. Mm-hmm. I did think for a while it could have been Eshenai, and I still think that's a possibility flying up there in storm form but i sort of feel like that's a long way to go mm-hmm. and esh and i wouldn't know i presume where elicar likes mm-hmm. to hang out and think and also hasn't been going up there over and over again multiple times to chip away at the stone mm-hmm. so it seems to me that of those three characters, it's most likely Renarin. And based on what I know now, that's what I'm going to say. I don't want to rule out the possibility of there being some yet unmentioned or some unthought of sort of fourth option, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, probably in all likelihood is it probably is some option that we haven't discussed here. But uh, but I'm going right now with Renarin. All right. And I really only have one other prediction and that's related to Tin. Okay. I think Tin is going to end up indirectly working for Sadius. Okay. So I think she was brought to the Shattered Plains, and she talks about people she knows. I do think she knows somebody. I don't think she knows Sadius. Mm-hmm. I don't think she knows Dalinar, Elikar, any of those cats. But I do think she probably knows one of the one of the lesser high princes who work with Sadius. So I think that she's going to go up there and somehow get involved with Sadius's crew. Mm -hmm. But I do think that Shalon will be able to pick up a lot of information from her Mm -hmm. in the meantime. So that's where when we asked, is this good for Shalon or bad for Shalon? I think the relationship with Tin is most likely to be good for Shalon Mm -hmm. or more likely to be good for Shalon. But I don't think Tin is necessarily going to be a positive character. Right. I just think specific to Shallan, she'll probably learn a lot from her. Gotcha. That's all I got. Those are good predictions. We'll see. Ready for next week. Ready. So what are we reading next week again? Chapters 28 through 34? Yes, sir. All right. So you can find us on the Duke and Duchess Podcast.com. That is our website. You can find us 
on Twitter at the DND Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess and on our Facebook group page at facebook.com backslash groups backslash the D&D group. You can find us on Instagram at the Duke and Duchess podcast. If you like what you've heard here, please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or any of those sort of podcatcher devices, wherever you get your podcast. We always love that and it helps us. Really what we love more than anything is when you guys interact with us and hang out with us on social media. So please do that. Please give us any ideas that you have about future books that you want us to cover, uh, different things that we could do. We're always looking for ideas for our upcoming 100th episode. Only 20 episodes away. That's right. Less than 20 episodes. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.